Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Lizzie Burden. Now, we all know that Liz Truss loves Margaret Thatcher. And as we found out yesterday, Ewan, the lady's not for learning. Yes, we should say a rather nice headline from The Guardian sketch. Liz Truss, our shortest serving prime minister, has been in the US defending her record, her rather short record. She argued that the West has lost its way since the Cold War and big government is out of control. You should bear in mind she was speaking to the Heritage Foundation, who very much think that big government is out of control. And she blamed the establishment for resisting change. And not only that, she listed the establishments who are resisting her change, the legal establishment, educational, environmental and the agricultural establishments. That seems to be a pretty much a, a full house. And she said that she simply underestimated the scale and depth of this resistance. Lizzie, do you do you, do you buy this? <laughs> well, she also took aim at Emmanuel Macron, the French president, uh, because she said he's being pretty much soft on China's stance on Taiwan. She says that that's a genuine real risk. Remember, she used to be foreign secretary. Remember as well, when she uh, was in office, she questioned whether Macron was friend or foe. So mm. continuing in that vein. I think that this is perhaps Truss uh, looking to another Tory hero, Winston Churchill, and trying to attempt to make history kind to her by trying to write it i don't know whether people will buy it i think the other thing the other elephant in the room to 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 quote you the markets. I mean, it's all very well saying that the establishment didn't, didn't buy this, but ultimately, it, it wasn't the establishment which which brought this down. It was the markets. Unless you see the markets as some part of some wider conspiracy, but at the end of the day, the markets said, "Yabu sucks. You're not having the money, and you can't do this." And and really, no government when it's pressed for cash can can argue with that. But she does argue with that. She says that there was this underlying weakness in the pensions market, that the Bank of England should have done more about that, that she should have been warned. It ain't Liz Truss's fault, Ewan, <laughs> says she. Yes, well, let's, uh, let, let's see. <laughs> now, speaking of the Truss administration, it's nearly six months to the day that Kwasi Kwarteng was sacked as her chancellor. Take a listen to this blast from the past. Our position hasn't changed. I will come up uh, with the uh, medium-term fiscal plan on the 31st of October, as I uh, said earlier in the week, uh, and there'll be more detail there. What I'm totally focused on is on delivering uh, on the mini-budget, making sure that we get growth back into our economy. I'm not going anywhere. Now, you'll remember Kwasi Kwarteng had to fly back from the IMF's autumn meetings early in an attempt to save his job. He found out from uh, Twitter, I think it was. Yeah, pretty awkward. Um, you remember uh, now that uh, UK Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, whose job looks rather safer, he's in Washington now for the spring organisation's spring meetings. Uh, Bloomberg's Maria today caught up with the Chancellor and asked him if that chapter of UK chaos is now over. 
I think the page has really turned on that. It was obviously a very difficult period for the UK, but uh, talking to my fellow finance ministers, uh, we are all thinking about the future. I think there's a lot of confidence in the UK. Uh, the IMF themselves say that the UK is on the right track. Uh, we've had two big fiscal events, uh, a budget and an autumn statement, uh, which I think have commanded international confidence. So I think there's a lot of positivity towards the UK this time around. So it is in the past, but I do have to ask you, because Liz Truss happens to be here too today, and she said there are establishment forces that at times make uh, your policy very difficult. They do not want you to get on a policy path that may not be conventional, but is good for the country. When you come here, on a very honest note, do you feel you're fighting the establishment? I've been in frontline politics for nearly 20 years now, and you are always fighting to get the policies you want through. I mean, right now, like uh, finance ministers in Germany, uh, the United States, France, Japan, we're all wrestling with how to improve productivity, how to get our growth rates up, how to pay for public services. And sure, these are the battles we all fight, but I think what people recognize is that the UK economy has had a difficult period, but has also got tremendous resilience. I'll give you one, one fact, Maria. We are now the third largest tech economy in the world after the United States and China. And that is the area where we think we've got tremendous potential going forward. And to be fair, people said the city was going to disappear after Brexit and obviously has not been the case. But before we get to that point, I do want to go into the IMF forecast because they have upgraded the contraction. So it's not going to be as severe this year, but they also say for next year's 1% growth. Is that acceptable to you? Is there a fundamental growth problem in the UK? Or actually, do you believe, well, the IMF is wrong? We're going to do better than this. Well, we will do better than that. They are wrong, um, the projections. Our, our forecast are significantly better than the IMF forecast. But what I should say is that last year we were the fastest growing economy in the G7. But why is there this gap then? Well, I think... Where is it um, coming from? You know, it's not just me. I mean, the German finance minister uh, says he's much more optimistic about Germany's prospects. Uh, I think Janet Yellen has said the same about the United States. So, so you say we will prove um, so we are we are very confident about the UK's medium and longer term prospects. But we don't pretend that we're going we're not going through a difficult period. Like everyone, we're dealing with very high inflation, which we have to bring down. That means interest rates are higher. But you look at an economy and you say, what are the sectors that are going to make the biggest difference, that are going to shape the 21st century? And it's technology, it's life sciences, it's uh, entertainment industries. Those are the industries where Europe has the biggest, where the UK has the biggest sector in Europe. And that gives us great hope for the future. And, and if you say we will grow more than expected and we are going to beat uh, those projections, obviously you list a number of areas where you feel you can do better than expected. But you also have a potential well, a trade deal with the EU. There had been tensions with the EU, potential tariffs uh, that could come into play. That, we believe, is not going to happen now with the uh, Windsor framework. Uh, but I do wonder, uh, when is this going to be fully clarified for investors? Because still, it's not been fully sealed. Well, the Windsor framework has been agreed, and I think this is... But in Northern Ireland, you don't have still a confirmation this is going through, and uh, they have to agree to this. We are committed to the Windsor framework. It will go through. What we don't have in Northern Ireland, which we are trying very hard, and indeed the President is also trying very hard to get back, is power sharing by the political parties in Northern Ireland. But in terms of the trade 
uh, relationship with the EU, the trading that's going to happen between uh, the rest of the UK and Northern Ireland, that is settled with the Windsor framework. And that removes a major irritant in our relations with the EU. And that is very important because the big lesson of the last year is that democracies like the EU, the UK and the US have far more in common when we're facing threats like uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine and we need to stand together. And I think that's been the big message of all the finance ministers from the democracies who are meeting together here in Washington. But if you had to put a number on it, how much trade? And you talk about this framework that has been agreed. We know the president of the U.S. is going to the U.K. There had been talks or has been about this potential trade deal, which in the U.K. is very big, but in the U.S. it's not so much a political point. Do you believe there will be this trade deal between the U.K. and the U.S.? And also quantifiable, what is the number of it? How much trade are you talking about? What is the potential uh, growth component for the economy, essentially? Well, we welcome trade deals with, with any friends and allies, but there is much more to our relationship with the United States than a, the free trade agreement. I mean, so we have a you, very, very close security partnership. Uh, we are talking... But you haven't given up on it. Well, we would welcome discussions when the time is right. Which will but be? this is not something that we think is imminent, and nor are we particularly worried if, it, if the time isn't right. Uh, we'll wait until the time is right. But what, we'd, what I would say is the discussions that I'm having with Janet Yellen um, and other democracies are about economic security because what we've learned from Ukraine is that energy dependency on Russia was a very dangerous thing. Uh, Russia tried to use that to hobble our response to their aggression in Ukraine and we need to avoid that economic dependency on, on anyone. So when it comes to energy, when it comes to technology, we are all having where discussions. Does China, where, where does China feed into this? Well, you know, China because is Russia has done. The, the, the question is now what happens with countries like China? Absolutely. You'll learn the lessons yeah. from and, it. And uh, we want to have a positive relationship so with no China. Decouple. But uh, we also recognize that we have to avoid economic dependencies in, in areas like semiconductors, uh, artificial inter intelligence, the areas that are going to define the 21st century. Uh, and so we are having discussions about how do you maintain a positive trading relationship with China because there's an enormous amount of trade that is beneficial to them, beneficial to us, but avoid those economic dependencies that we've learned can be a very bad thing. And, and will there be a communique at the end of the G, uh, well, the, the IMF meetings, excuse me, today? Obviously, there, there had been debate that Russia is going to once again block this communique, that China is also sitting on the sidelines. I mean, these meetings, are you hopeful that there will be some kind of consensus coming well, out of this? What I'd say, Maria, is you're always hopeful there'll be a consensus. But if there isn't a consensus, it's better to be honest about that, not to have a communique, uh, than to try and have a communique that's pretty meaningless. And obviously you've had a well a difficult job uh, to inherit. And, and as you say, it has been a difficult year uh, for the UK. But I wonder if you believe all of this has come together, you're going to see this economy grow. To me, what it sounds is that you want to be in a good shape for next year. And obviously the timing is around the election. Do you want to see an early election or do you want to see a late election in the year when perhaps all of this will come into fruition? If you believe you're right. Well, it's too soon to answer that question. You don't want to put a season on it. Maybe um, it's the autumn you don't, you don't... What I would say is that if you look at the projections, not just by the IMF, but by the official forecasters in the UK, uh, by the Bank of England, they are that in a year's time, the UK economy will really have turned a corner. And the single reason for that is that we are predicted to get inflation down to 3% or below. 
and that is the, the single... Do you believe you can hit that number? Because the IMF also says on the fiscal side they have, they have questions about some of your targets. Yeah, but they also believe we can hit that number and I believe we can get inflation under control, but I don't underestimate the challenge because just as in the United States and the EU, core inflation, underlying inflation, is still between 4 and 6%. So there's still a lot of work to do. Well, that was Jeremy Hunt speaking to Maria Tadeo in Washington. Yeah, well, now Hunt's claim that the economy was, quote, looking brighter than expected was somewhat undermined this morning by the latest GDP data. They showed that the economy flatlined in February on a monthly basis, which was a worse performance than economists had expected. And that's partly, largely, because strikes weighed on services. If you look ahead at economists' expectations, they see stagnation in 2023 and only feeble growth next year, largely because of all the tight monetary policy that we're seeing, not just in the UK, but around the world. It's hardly a cause for celebration. But an interesting point uh, our colleague David Goodman from Markets Today made this morning, Ewan, he said, you're seeing more of an effect of the teacher strikes now than the rail strikes before, because people have adjusted to working from home more than they did, uh, more than they uh, have to taking time off to look after their kids. And... Without the strikes, the Institute of Directors, Kitty Usher, has said that the economy would have grown. But that raises another question. Is it time for the government to pay off the unions to meet its priority of growing the economy? There was a little bit of good news, though, wasn't there, on the economy? Not to not to sort of puncture all this doom and gloom, but uh, the January GDP number was revised upwards to 0.4%, which is pretty respectable for a month of growth. So that does mean we'll probably uh, avoid contraction in the first quarter. On the strikes thing, I think yeah, that is an interesting point. I've, I've long said that, uh, that union power, in certainly in, in the transport sector, is not what it was because these days we can all work from home. So if the trains aren't working, a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people just say, well, I'm going to stay at home and uh, work on my laptop. So I, I think that could be a factor which has helped to, to lead to the, to the ending of the transport strikes, whereas a lot of the other strikes, of course, um, are, are still going on. Interesting what this, all this means for the date of the next election as well. Unsurprisingly, Hunt wouldn't be uh, drawn on that at all, but he did say the data would be better in a year's time. Uh, probably wouldn't be difficult. Does that mean we're going to see a spring election? I'm not sure that you can read that into what he said. It is a question, though. If the election is in spring 2024, will that be late enough for people to feel the benefits of a pre-election spending boost? He doesn't want to, as I've said before, make the mistake that John Major made and pump everything into the economy and then the boom come for your uh, successor. Yeah, absolutely. That was uh, a big problem for the Tories back then. I think if you look back over the last couple of decades, Calling an election early is an important sign of confidence, isn't it? So in 1983 and 87, uh, Thatcher went to the country uh, a year early after four years rather than five. And again, Blair did this in 2001 and in 2005. That is a sign that we're in control. This We're controlling this timetable on our agenda and we're going to call the election when we want it. If you look at two obvious examples where governments uh, uh, let the, the clock run out and they had to run the full five years, 1997, when the Tories uh, were completely devastated, and 2010, when Gordon Brown prevaricated and ended up calling the election later than originally uh, mooted, both those times were really bad for the governing party. So I think uh, if the Tories are forced to wait nearer towards the, the deadline, which is January 2025, then that will be a sign of uh, lack of confidence. So let's watch that uh, in a year's time. 
Now, speaking of indicators, another economic indicator that we're watching that could influence the mood of an election and the Bank of England is the housing market. Even though the latest data from the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors were an improvement on recent times, Simon Rubinson, the RIC's chief economist, told Stephen Carroll and me earlier that there's still a need for caution. So there is a bit more confidence that this isn't going to be a hard landing for the property market. And that's visible in some of the key metrics that we we capture on a monthly basis. But the, the, you know, the overall mood in the sector is still a little bit cautious. And you know, while the nationwide numbers were weak um, um, and you know, that you know, perhaps um, was, um, you know, may have, you know, let's say, as you say, backward looking, maybe perhaps exaggerating um, what's, what, what's going on and is in marked contrast to the Halifax data. I think what we're hearing is perhaps somewhere in between um, at the moment. So, okay, take that on board and that it's perhaps a turning point in sentiment, but not a significant one given where things are at the moment. What what exactly are the metrics that are driving that, that shift? What we are seeing is um, a, a stabilisation in in sort of inquiries from buyers. So that that particular um, indicator, I think, is a really key one. If people aren't coming into estate agents to buy property, then you know clearly that's going to have ramifications all the way down the chain. So we're seeing certainly a stabilisation and, in fact, a modest. Um, improvement and by that I mean a less negative trend and I think that that is linked to the point about perhaps signs that the interest rate cycle may be close to peaking perhaps more importantly that mortgage rates have settled down you know we all saw that we we will recall what happened last autumn since then you know there are better deals on offer I think despite some of the um, concerns around um, what happened in terms of the banking sector that mortgage lenders for the, the time being are still lending you know that idea of that there would be a knock-on effect in terms of um, standards perhaps a tightening in lending standards I don't think is coming through at the moment so I think that's quite encouraging and helping to sort of frame the sort of more general tone of this survey. Yeah, we get the latest UK credit conditions survey from the Bank of England today, and it's obviously going to take account of the latest banking turmoil uh, on financial conditions in the real economy. Do you think that that will have much of an impact on the outlook for home sales and prices? Well, I I think that, you know, that um, the uncertainty around um, the finance sector inevitably is you know something that can has the potential to cast a pall over um, a sector like property residential property as well as commercial property where sort of um, lending leverage is so important in in driving um, demand and supporting demand but uh, as I said I think that at the moment certainly what, the, what I'm picking up from lenders is that there is you know we, we haven't seen that marked tightening um, that could have manifested itself in the wake of SVB and Credit Suisse now that's not to say that there aren't going to be other, you know, the other um, events that might actually lead to to that actually manifesting itself. But for the time being, certainly our indicators don't seem to be pointing in that direction. Okay, I, I'm. I just want to ask you a question about the rental market as well, because your your survey is still showing a squeeze in that market as well. Is there any any cause for optimism on that front, or is there is that something that there's intervention needed on? 
Well, I think that the rental market is a completely separate, uh, you know, area, as you say, and you know, it's it's there really is some fundamental challenges there, and I think you know it's it's really when one thinks about interventions, I think one has to think about it in the round about what sort of rental market one wants to develop. I mean, I know that there's a lot of focus on build to rent, but that is very much a slow burn, um, and alongside that, we're also aware, understandably, perhaps in the in the current circumstances that there isn't a lot of government money to help directly support building of, of perhaps more affordable homes, which puts a lot of the heavy lifting on the, the buy-to-let market. But the, some of the, the, the changes, some of them totally understandable around regu- the regulatory environment, have uh, you know, are acting as a major disincentive for that sector. And you know when you don't have the supply coming through, you know, it's almost inevitable in an environment where demand is robust that you'll see rents rise. And unfortunately, that's still the picture. Certainly, as far as renters are concerned, are concerned that's unfortunately still the picture. And I don't see, mm. I mean, I can see a slowing of rental growth through the year, but it's hard to see the pressure easing materially. Well, Simon Rubinson, uh, Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, uh, Chief Economist there. So the housing market isn't crashing, but there's still gloom, not exactly cause for celebration. It reminds me of Jeremy Hunt's reaction to the GDP figures this morning. He claimed it as a Tory victory that the UK isn't in recession. Yay. <laughs> yeah, those figures from Rick's, not exactly stellar, were they? I think they've written up as uh, as as decent news on the housing market. The, re- the reading went from a net balance of uh, minus 47 in February. This is uh, state agents and surveyors uh, seeing house prices going up to a net balance of minus 43. Look, I mean, compared to six months ago, the housing market is in uh, a better place, isn't it? Of course, in the wake of the, the mini budget, we saw mortgages spike and mortgage availability uh, plummet. So that was really bad for the housing market. And I think the situation is a lot better now. Mortgage rates have come down and mortgage availability is better. Uh, But house prices are still falling. All the indicators uh, suggest that uh, nationwide house price uh, index says that house prices are falling at the fastest annual rate since 2009. Where all this ends, I think, is not quite certain. One little bugbear of mine, though, Lizzie, is when uh, people like us talk about good news on the housing market to mean house prices are rising. And of course, house prices rising all the time is not good news. It's actually bad news for a lot of people. So I hope that's not something that you do. Oh, I wouldn't like to get on your nerves, Ewan. Well, you know, we've got actually some new data today. I did mention it in that interview with Simon Rubinson. It's the latest credit conditions survey from the Bank of England. And that found that actually UK mortgage availability is expected to fall in the second quarter of this year, that UK household demand for credit is expected to rise in the second quarter, and that UK loan defaults rose in the first quarter and are expected to increase further. So what I take from that is that financial conditions are tightening. And the question is for the Bank of England at its next meeting, how they tightening enough that it's actually doing the work of the Bank of England for it, the legwork uh, of inflation fighting. Does that mean that it's time to hold interest rates um, as Bloomberg Economics reckons they will at their May meeting? Actually, at the IMF meeting uh, that Jeremy Hunt was at, Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England governor, was there too. Uh, And he was really trying to stress the separation between policy on financial stability and inflation fighting. He said that they've got different tools for both. But 
as we've noted, you've got a new member joining the Monetary Policy Committee in the form of Megan Green, replacing Silvana Tenreiro. And on Bloomberg TV, she has talked about her concerns about the interplay between financial stability and monetary policy. So let's see whether there's a disagreement when she arrives at Threadneedle Street. Yeah, and really interesting on rents, Rick say that they're expecting a 4% rise uh, in rents over the next year, which uh, they, they say is, is bad because the market is constrained. But of course, 4% is rather less than the inflation rate. But there's no doubt that rents have risen, particularly in London, by an awful lot. And that is pricing uh, lots and lots of people out of the market. So that's something else uh, we need to watch. Yeah, and if the Tories and Labour want to grab the young vote, they're going to need to pay attention to renters. Well, I think we did ask Simon Rubinson uh, about policy on that area, but he did point out, as you say, there's very big difference between uh, buying and renting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, interesting to look at the IMF's uh, Dismal growth forecast, which Jeremy Hunt uh, rejects. Uh, they said that say that the UK uh, is likely to shrink by 0.3% this year. That's already possibly looking uh, slightly out of date with the better revised data for January. And they say that the UK will just expand by 1% in 2024. Our colleague uh, Mark Cobmore over at MLive says that the IMF have a dreadful record on uh, uh, economic predictions and that goes for the UK uh, and for other countries around the world. So uh, interesting to keep an eye on that. Yeah, to be fair, the IMF has upgraded its forecast for UK GDP by more than it has for any other G7 nation, but Britain is still bottom of the pack. Still bottom of the table. Lizzie, what else are we looking ahead to today? Well, Remember, we were talking about health with IPPR yesterday. It's the fourth and final day of the junior doctors' strike in England today because their union and their union has asked the arbitration service ACAS to step in to help with negotiations with ministers. The Guardian newspaper is reporting that the NHS Confederation, which of course represents hospital bosses, is urging the government to accept their demands. So maybe by the time of tomorrow's podcast, we'll know where they settle. Mm, Yeah, well, maybe. 35% they're calling for. The government says that's unaffordable and to some junior doctors receiving a pay rise of over £20,000. Junior doctors say that their pay has fallen behind inflation for years and years. Senior NHS figures reckon that between 250,000 and 350,000 appointments and operations could be cancelled just in the space of four days. Same old, same old. Let's see whether everyone budges in the smoke-filled rooms. Well, that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Mariful Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.